Welcome to the show for a bonus episode, everybody. I'm very excited. I'm in here. I'm recording this from Jamaica. You may hear the ocean crashing in the background. It's wonderful here. It's uh, such a great time. I'm here with Michael Meditations. I don't, I'm always like, I don't know if I have room in my schedule to be going down and helping out with these retreats. And then I come down here and I'm like, oh man, well, I better make time. And I don't know. I think I, I'm going to keep, now that I'm here, I'm like, I got to do this more often. That's the way I always feel when I'm here. Uh, check out Myco Meditations. Um, uh, you may know Eric Osborne from the documentary Psychonautics in the mushroom section, so you can check that out. I'm just in a pretty good mood, generally speaking. I had a big seasonal depression, winter funk kind of situation that I've I've pulled myself out of. I'm feeling good. I'm excited. People have been um, enjoying the documentary and leaving positive reviews and feedback. And so I thought I'd uh, release a bonus episode for you guys today about sloths, one of my favorite creatures on all of planet Earth. I would say my spirit animal, though I'm I'm kind of trying to be less sloth-like and doing more work than I need to by releasing a bonus episode. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Really cool, really fun, and yeah, sloths. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with vertebrate paleontologist and research fellow at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History, Ryan Halpert, everybody. Hey, how's it going? Did I nail that? Yeah. Oh, my. Thank goodness. I, I wish I would have kept in the last one that we did because it was real special. But I nailed it. That intro got it. That that For the listeners, that was... Take number four. That's not bad. Yeah, four is good. I mean, it's it just a couple extra minutes out of our lives. You, Ryan, came over to have me on your podcast, Sort of Science. Science, sort of. Science, sort of? Science, dot, 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 sort of. Oh, well, see, I agreed to a podcast called Sort of Science. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Looking at I'll, the delete, email. I'll delete the recording. I <laughs> right didn't realize now. I came under yeah, false pretenses. Yeah. Yeah, no. I I argued science against science, sort of. Yeah, I argued against putting an ellipses in the title. I thought it would confuse people, and it's only been ten years, but I've been proven right almost every single time it's mm. come up. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> <laughs> well, within that, I found out that you study sloths. Yes, I'm mostly a sloth person. Oh my gosh, and I love sloths, and I was f- feeling very sloth-like today. Uh, it's the winter, just like not into life that much, not feeling particularly motivated. Of just, the seven deadly sins, it's the easiest one because you, you don't have to do anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sloth, I get down with that one. Yeah. Um, the other ones, no thank you. But sloth, I can get into. I And I was like, don't be a sloth, Shane. Talk about sloths. And so I asked you if you could stick around and be on the Here We Are podcast. Happy to do it. And I am so excited 
I've already learned so much. We're just going to, first off, I'm just going to make you repeat some of the stuff that we already talked sure. about and then just go way more in depth into it because I didn't feel uh, when you were interviewing me for your podcast, I wanted to ask you a lot, mm-hmm. of, but it was your podcast, it's hard. so I couldn't do that. I'm often and guilty of going down. the tables have yeah. turned. Hey, you're guilty of going down, down that. the sloth hole too, too, too readily. I'm too eager to talk about sloths, which is a very unsloth-like characteristic. Of so mine. you've had you've had 300 episodes or so, more than that, of your podcast. We actually started the podcast before I had anything to do with sloth research. So I've okay. become a sloth researcher over the history of the show. So in real sloths time. just kind of slowly crawl their way into the podcast. I I started my. I started the show when I was still an undergrad at University of California, Santa Cruz. And then I went to Vanderbilt University to get my master's. And I was working with uh, another paleontologist, Dr. Larissa DeSantis. And she was getting really into this technique that um, analyzes the microscopic surface texture of teeth. So the things we eat. So if you were eating some trail mix and crunching down on some nuts and seed pits, you would end up with a different texture on your teeth than if you're eating something really chewy and tough like beef jerky. Ah. And his technique works really well on primates that was initially developed in kind of an anthropological setting, but it also works on other mammals because mammals tend to be very, we chew a lot. Like if you think about one of the main evolutionary adaptations of mammals, it's that we're chewers, not a lot of... You don't think about like crocodiles chewing, so that's that's something oh, that's yeah. mammals have. Really, I guess I have yeah. never thought about crocodiles chewing. Dinosaurs before. were pretty good chewers. There were some pretty good chewing dinosaurs, yeah. so that was another one of their adaptations. Oh, so this is one of the things that you can learn from looking at teeth. Exactly. So paleontologists love teeth, and and uh, because they preserve really well in the fossil record, they're really hard, and. The problem is uh, sloths, almost anything you can assume about mammals, it's probably not safe to assume that about sloths. They have hair and they mm-hmm. mil- they give their young milk and live birth. Like that's about where your assumptions can end. And sloths don't have enamel on their teeth like we do. So uh, you and I have like a, a coating of enamel on our teeth that um, makes them very hard. It's enamel is the hardest substance your body produces. It's about 95% hydroxyapatite and 5% organic. So it's, it's basically a rock inside your mouth. And sloths have lost their enamel, so they have softer teeth that are just dentin that grow continuously their entire life, just like the front teeth of a rodent. Oh, fun. And so it was unclear if this technique looking at the microscopic surface texture would work on a softer tooth. And so uh, she kind of pitched me and said, hey, does this sound like an interesting research project for you to do for your master's? And that's where I got my sloth start. Heck yeah, it does. Soft. I can be a a soft tooth guy. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, sloths and armadillos armadillos are are the closest relatives to sloths that have teeth because sloths closest relatives are anteaters which don't have any teeth soft sloth teeth that's almost a tongue twister but not quite well and if you're talking about sloths you can always just slow it down it's insane. <laughs> that's, that's always allowed when it comes to sloths oh my goodness so when i when i die which it's not a hundred percent that that's going to happen. I mean, it's not looking good for me being immortal. I haven't died yet, but lots, it, it tends to be a trend. Do you anticipate some sort of cryosleep scenario or, or conscience I don't think, transference? Are yeah, you going to become I a robot brain? I don't think the cryo thing works. I think no, it's I want, my understanding that the cells, like when they're frozen, they, they just lice, rip yeah. into, into pieces. Mm-hmm. And so like, why would you, I mean, so you, you just have to like be able to reconstruct everything. And so you a, can just like, I, I could like, I think you could just grind me up, put me in a can, 
stick me in a freezer and you'd have the same chances of resurrecting me as you would freezing my body and that would be cheaper so i don't need to save as much for just to like be put in a can i feel or we could put you up in the seed vault in Svalbard, up in norway what's that it's like this vault that's up in norway where we keep all the seeds oh you should get somebody i don't i don't know enough about it to speak intelligently but basically it's like this ultra secure vault where all of our seeds are stored in case we ever need oh, to like oh i do know about bring that. things back after some sort of terrible yeah climate catastrophe i read a book about seeds Noah's and now this part or, is coming yep. back to me well so we could put you up there a shane seed uh first off god said that he was never going to do that again that's so true different kind of disaster worried is, is about coming. it um, <laughs> um but so say i do die uh and then you know future peoples they hear this podcast and they're like god i gotta take a look at this guy's teeth yeah. so they dig me up uh-huh. and they're gonna be able to know that i was way into ba- beef jerky are they gonna know that i was into like taffy well, so with our teeth, with our enamel teeth, where this technique works very well, it works very well over a very short time scale. So uh, with this dental microtexture analysis, DMTA, but I'll just say, you know, microtextures because acronyms can be confusing if you start using them too quickly and too soon. Um, so with these microtextures, there's a significant last supper effect, which is actually what we've, we've called it. So a little bit of religious connotation there, but it seems that... Uh, the textures form over the last couple of meals of an animal's life. So about 24 to 48 hours. There's some research that's arguing that it's maybe closer to like a week, but it's still what you're eating towards the end of your life. So this in in the same way that um, people want to like clear their browser history or, uh, you know, your, your mom will tell you to put on clean underwear because if you die, die yep. you want to have clean. I, I don't know where that came from. It's a definite persistent they, meme it, though. Yeah. It's very strange. Uh, it's, it's, I, but I know exactly what you're talking about. So. I, 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 I feel like parents just unnecessarily scare children. But also like, your they bowel- used a lot of other reasons to get me to change my underpants rather than reminding me of my mortality. And your bowels let go when you die anyway. Yeah. So it's none of it makes any sense but in that same vein uh your teeth Mm -hmm. you you like i'm embarrassed by how much candy that i eat and so i shouldn't i should i should try to each day or if i knew i was going to die i should eat like uh, people can go back and be like oh this guy ate a lot of salads and Mm -hmm. less embarrassing things or if you just want to you know scorched earth approach just grind up a bunch of sand in your teeth before you kick it oh something super abrasive okay clear the evidence yeah a guy in my lab did a uh my the lab where i did my phd work uh he was also into the microware but he wanted to see what um environmental factors might play a role in the microware story and so he um fed a bunch of sheep grass and Mm -hmm. sedated them molded their (laughs) molded their teeth because you you take a tooth mold to do this analysis and then um got a bunch more uh, hay or grass soaked it in like corn syrup with uh, sand or silica I love what scientists do and then by fed the, way. the sheep again they were more than happy to eat you know grit covered sure uh hay or, or grass and then he sedated them molded their teeth again and was able to show experimentally that um exogenous grit so uh just kind of sediment from the environment can also if you're pulling it up when you pull up the plant that you're going to eat can have a big effect and he was doing that because he was comparing it to a site where um there was a volcanic eruption so there was a lot of naturally occurring silica on the landscape 
that uh, might have been playing a role in some of the animals that died in that area and the, the microware that he was looking at from that fossil site. Hmm. site called Ashfall in Nebraska. So. And so the Ashfall was screwing up the fossil record? The Ashfall was, he was trying to see if he was getting a true indicator of diet when he looked at the microware of the teeth or if the Ashfall, the ash covering the plants and then the animals going ahead and eating the plant anyway was the silica, the silicate ash on the plants playing as big a role as the plants themselves. So, Hmm. and it it looks like it is. Science. Yeah. We're always figuring out weird little things. What can't you guys do? Um, So... When did you get into sloths? So that, uh, I started my master's. So, so that was sloth teeth was first. Sloth teeth was first. So, so soft teeth. In the, let's, let's check this out. We, mm-hmm. we need sloth teeth things. Sloths are the best example. What else has sloth, uh, soft teeth? Up? Armadillos, which are closely okay. related to sloths. They're all part of a group called Xenarthrins. Oh my um, goodness, I didn't know that. So what else is in this group? Sloths, anteaters, and armadillos. And that's it. And they're extinct relatives. Uh-huh. So there's like extinct things that you would think looked like a armadillo that was the size of a Volkswagen beetle. They're not technically armadillos, but they're in that same group of it's called cingulata. And then, um, tons and tons of different kinds of sloths. So the, the biggest, uh, sloths ever were about the size of an elephant, um, but bipedal. So instead of on all fours, like a modern elephant, they would be up on their hind legs. Oh, crazy. Uh, uh, Megatherium and Arimatherium are the two biggest sloths we found from the Arimatherium. Uh, Rheumatherium was more in North America and Megatherium was more in South America. And we're talking about maybe like 15, 16 feet tall uh, on their hind legs with a giant kind of tripod tail. And, wow. Um, probably filling sort of the giraffe ecomorph feeding from the tops of tall trees. Um, huh. Yeah. Were, were giant sloths equally chill or were they scary? That's up for debate. Um, there was a paper that came out in the mid 90s. I mean, if you saw one, we're going to get a time machine. I think if you first at first glance when you see a sloth, you're at first be glance, okay. So I've thought about this a lot. Um, <laughs> I have no evidence for this this hypothesis. I'm Perfect. not going to call it a theory because theory okay. theory makes it sound like a more well founded idea than sure. it is. But I have often wondered if um, the Paleo Indians coming across the Bering Land Bridge into North America. Uh, when I was when I was a kid growing up, I was super into like cryptozoology and Loch Ness monster and UFOs and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm big, sorry. Bigfoot is a big part of that, right? <laughs> sure. And so um, a lot of times people will explain Bigfoot that it's like a bear because, you know, black American black bears can can walk on their hind legs. And if you look at the actual um, reported sightings of Bigfoot, that the range distribution overlap matches up very well with black bears. Um, but I'm thinking about the Paleo-Indians coming from Eurasia and there are bears in Eurasia. So if they see a bear, they're going to know what that is. But if they saw a ground sloth, they would never have seen anything like that. Ground sloths are completely unique to the Americas. There's nothing like that. Uh, they never made it across the land bridge in the other direction. So they never made it to Eurasia. So they were South America, North America, and the Caribbean. And that's it. And that's the only places that have ever had sloths. And so I've often wondered that if you were a Paleo-Indian coming across this land bridge and you saw this shaggy beast on two legs in the forest maybe that's where some of the, uh, the Sasquatch it myth would and lore. look just like Bigfoot and yeah. it would have a big foot. It would have a big foot. Huh. And it would be novel, like unlike the bear, which I, I feel like they would have seen as a more normal, typical animal. So I don't know. Just, just a thought that, that I've had is cause, cause we also wonderful. have ground sloth fossils huh. that are about the size of a, you know, small grizzly bear from the Yukon territory but, and, and Alaska. And so they were like, they would have encountered them pretty quickly. Do we know how long people have been uh, spreading around the the Bigfoot talk? No, I don't. I it's I haven't actually looked in 
I, it's sort of the sort of thing I haven't looked into because I don't want to be yeah. wrong immediately. Uh, but I do know there's not a lot of um, ground sloth cave art. They're like su- they're they're surprisingly absent from most uh, Paleolithic cave art hmm. with the the bison hunts and the dire wolves and all that stuff. They're just for whatever reason the ground sloths weren't on the radar and sort of that evolutionary psychology thinking is maybe it just wasn't impressive for the young men to go out and claim to have killed this slow-moving dumb animal. <laughs> Not that like, you know, dumb, dumb subjective term, but... Um, yeah, anyone can kill a sloth. But if you're asking like, were the ground sloths as slow or uh, mild-mannered as the modern sloths, um, modern sloths are, are less cute and cuddly than i think popular culture believes and the ground sloths were probably ground sloths were probably a little bit more active you know um i think part of why tree sloths seem very lethargic and slow is that um they're very metabolically limited and they also have adopted this suspensory posture where they hang from the branches of trees and you know that's a very energetically not taxing thing to do you just hang there and chill their their relaxed mo- uh, mode for their hand is to be clasping so they're actually relaxed when they're hanging off of something and ground sloths wouldn't have been able to do that because they as far as we know uh we don't have any record of the transition from ground sloth to tree sloth so that's completely missing in the fossil record we have these giant elephant sized animals and then, then the smallest ground sloths were maybe the size of a medium sized or, or large dog and then um, they go extinct about 10,000 years ago. Uh, much more recently in the Caribbean, actually, the, the ground sloths of the Caribbean survived until 4,000 years ago. So, like, the Great Pyramids were built by then, which is, like, crazy to think about. The, hmm. the A world with ground sloths that already has, like, pyramids. Um, and the, and there, was, there wasn't records back that people weren't drawing ground sloths doesn't <laughs> I mean, we don't Was see it, like it. some sacred thing we, i don't know we don't draw the ground i mean sloth. we have we have ground sloths carving things into cave walls so there are paleo burrows that are like as big as the room we're in that have ground sloth claw marks on the walls because the ground sloth seems to have excavated them themselves uh, hmm. down in like bolivia and brazil which is pretty crazy to think about hmm. and we know that they spend time in caves uh here in the american southwest and in cave sites in like ecuador so you know they were would go underground when when necessary and carve out their own spaces but yeah for whatever reason uh th- there doesn't seem to be much culture developed around them by the the native americans who were living here before they went extinct so hmm. so humans drove them into extinction also heavily debated um I have found in my experience as a paleontologist that the late Pleistocene extinction, uh, which happened about 10,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age is something that is so hotly debated that like people actually do get upset about it. Um, <laughs> and so the, the most famous hypothesis, I like people getting worked up about sloths. Is well, and it's all the other me. things that went extinct too. Right. So it was, you know, the, the mammoths and mastodons oh, right, right, and, right. and woolly rhinos and all sure. those things. Um, and it's a very interesting extinction because it's very, um, size biased so it's only the largest animals that went extinct most of the smaller animals seem to make it through and so that seems that that seemed to suggest at one point that maybe humans were the main drivers of the extinction because if we were hunting them we were going to be hunting the larger animals for more food not the smaller animals um so that's called the overkill hypothesis Mm -hmm. but then it is also a period of great climate change you know it's the end of the last ice age so the world that these animals were evolved to live in was going away for the last time and there'd been interglacials before but this was the last one and so um i am a proponent of i don't ever see why it couldn't be a one-two punch like i don't know why are we like obviously humans were hunting these animals 
but obviously climate was changing too. And so both of those things combined, like it's not like one or the other has to be the only thing that mm-hmm. did it. Um, and the size component seems to be that larger animals have slower generation times. So if you think right, about how right, quickly right. it takes rats to repopulate, it's pretty quick. They right. have a lot of babies and they do it pretty quickly uh, and they reach sexual maturity very quickly. But something like an elephant, you know, one kid at a time, once a year, takes them a few years to reach sexual maturity. So if you disrupt that even a little bit, the knock-on effect that and can cause a population crash. Is- isn't an elephant like 18 months or mm-hmm. something like that? Yeah. I, I, do, do you guys, is there any way of knowing um, by examining the fossil record how large the uh, uh, the there's no word for baby sloth. There's no word for baby sloth. <laughs> that's what I learned. Before. Yep. There's no word. Uh, that is that's crazy to me. Yeah, and we've tried to come up with one, but we haven't we haven't um, come up with anything that we find to be satisfactory. So, so is there any indication of how long a gestation period was for one of these monstrous things? No, I mean gestation gestational period usually scales with body size, so yeah. you can estimate it based on just what you estimate their mass would have been. Um, but that's about the only clue that we have. There are some fossil sites, I think, in Alabama that look like they have um, family units, so an uh, adult sloth with a couple of young sloths, but I would say it was probably comparable to, you know, a large a large bear or, or you know, something something of comparable mass, a mm. moose, a, a rhino, something like that. Were there other predators? Yeah, that was a time of some really ferocious beasts living here in the Americas, and one of the other areas of my research is I, I uh, do carnivore stuff. So we had dire wolves, which are a wolf that was about 50% bigger than modern wolves, so not quite um, the the things you see on Game of Thrones, those are a little too big and they're proportioned just like a wolf. They're not proportioned like a true dire wolf. But we think dire wolves, based on some of this um, microware texture data or microware data in general, were just more bone crunching. So maybe that was why they're a little more heavier and robust because they were eating a more bone, like a hyena almost, compared to, to normal, or not normal wolves, but to the gray wolf we have today. Um, we had this saber-toothed cats, which is a type of animal that doesn't exist anymore, which is kind of cool. Like, it's this style of being a cat that was really successful for a long time. It's like a, a cat with these two daggers coming out of their mouth and, like, gorilla arms. Like, if you ever look at the the arms and shoulders of a saber-toothed cat, they look like they're almost, you know, they, like, just these linebackers for cats. Just you can imagine them tackling things like like ground sloths to the ground, and they were like the top predator around that. Uh, yeah, they were. Time. I mean, most cats are apex predators, so usually cats are at the top of the food chain. That's one of the things cats are best at. But there was also a American cheetah, uh, Myrasinonyx. I think yeah, Myrasinonyx was the, the genus name for that one, and it's closely related to modern day mountain lions and was about fifty percent bigger than an African cheetah. Um, and we think that they were probably also, you know, running, sprinting cats, much like modern cheetahs. So there's the animal, uh, the pronghorn out in the American West, which is sometimes called the pronghorn antelope. It's not actually an antelope. It's an antilocaparid. It's more closely related to things like giraffes, but it's the fastest land animal in North America. It can run at about 60 miles an hour Mm. and it's unclear why it evolved to run that fast. And so it could be that there was this cheetah like animal that was running them down in the past that doesn't exist anymore. And they're just, they're over evolved. They're over specialized for an environment that isn't actually present anymore, which is kind of crazy. Um, there was a short faced cave bear, which is debated whether or not it was a, a carnivore or more of an omnivore. Um, and then, uh, the American lion Panthera atrox, which was this giant, giant cat, um, much bigger than a modern lion or even a Siberian tiger, which is the largest cat out there today. So, you know, potentially coming in at like a thousand pounds for a cat so Ooh. yeah not huh. something you would want to mess with um probably not 
pack hunters, we don't think like modern lions, but that's also something that's really hard to test in the fossil record. How, how can you tell cooperative social behavior, which is something I, I think about with my research. So. Hmm. so you said that sloths are actually not as cute and cuddly as the media. They're definitely cute. Um, uh, uh, how uh, empirically speaking, s- scientifically, how cute our sloths that's actually. a good question um <laughs> on, on the very rigorous scale of scientific cuteness i would say on the scientific scale of cuteness uh i'm uh, they do have like a perma smile right they always yeah. kind of look like they're smiling which is very cute um yep. they're they're kind of they're kind of gangly and and cl- they kind of you know, act like klutzes when they're not up in their normal environment of the tree. So most of the human interactions you're going to have are they're going to seem kind of clumsy and we think of clumsy things as kind of cute. Yeah, I feel um, like I'm a sloth is my spirit animal. Yeah, they have like, and sloth is not my spirit animal, which is interesting that I've like fallen into researching them so much. Uh, but I often say that they're basically Muppets that kind of came to life. And so that's where I rank them on the cuteness scale. They're like a, a Muppet you would, you like, um, yeah, but you know they're 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 still wild animals. They're not domesticated and they're not social animals. So like something like a dog, you know, a dog wants to be part of a pack, right? That's like their mode. They're really excited to have a unit that they they can identify with and run around with and play and be social. And sloths are not that. And so I think humans. Um, Sloths seem very easy to, to love and to cuddle because they're natural climbers. And so if you are the only thing around to climb, they will climb onto you because sure. you're there. It doesn't mean that they're affectionate towards you. It just means that you're the only thing around yeah. and they're not naturally aggressive. Like their mode of getting out of bad situations is to kind of just shut down and go numb and try to like not be seen by not moving. Um, but you know, they will be aggressive if they've got no other option. And so I've seen, uh, sloths go in for a bite and the two totes sloths in particular have some pretty nasty teeth at the front of their mouth. They're not quite canines like you would see in a dog or a cat, but they're similarly shaped and they could definitely do some damage. And you know, I've gotten scratched and, and I've gotten shirts ripped and things like that from sloths, not even necessarily trying to be aggressive, but just trying to climb or get away from me when I'm, when I'm working with a live one and you know, I don't blame them for it, and they're stronger than you would think. I mean, they could easily break a finger if they got a, a hold of you at a bad angle. So, hmm. you know, and and I just in general, because I'm I love animals, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to become a, a paleontologist and a person who works with animals in the first place. I am a very strong and tireless advocate for just like let wild animals be wild animals, and like don't try to have an interaction with an animal that that doesn't want it. You know, I I get sent videos all the time of people helping claw people helping sloths, you know, cross the road. And that's a big problem for sloths in the developing world, because as Central and South America becomes more industrialized and more developed, there are going to be more roads and roads are very difficult for sloths. But in general, um, I just, I often try to caution people against over anthropomorphizing or, or over coddling wild animals when it's not necessary. Hmm. Can we make like little sloth bridges or something? Yeah, that's, um, so I work, <laughs> you gave me an idea for a, another thing to plug at the end of the show. But one of the organizations I work with is the uh, Sloth Conservation Foundation, founded by a good friend of mine and, and collaborator on some research, Rebecca Cliff. And um, that is something that is one of their missions is they want to make, they want to increase forest connectivity, especially above in the tree, in the canopy zone, where more than just sloths, you know, you think about like all the different monkeys that live down there too, would benefit from having a way to cross human areas like roads without ever actually having to interact with humans. So 
And it's also true for, you know, development of farms. You want to give these animals a way to cross through farms that may be monocultures that aren't suitable trees for sloths to cross through. So there's a lot of thought about how do we make the forest a connected place for these animals to keep moving around and maintain a more normal range or, or habitat for what they're used to. So <laughs> my mind has... I feel like I'm giving you very long and like rambling answers. Oh, for no, these. no, okay. no, no. That's encouraged. Um, I makes my job a whole lot easier. Okay. Ramble away. Um, but I, I have to admit, my mind has been in a little bit of a gutter ever since you mentioned sloth poop. I the, it came up in the podcast we did. You you talked about biologists being interested in poop, and I was like, "What's interesting about poop?" Because we've never really talked about excrement on the Here We Are podcast before. I never really even thought to. It uh, you know I, I try to think about it as little as possible. According to a book I read, everybody does it. So yeah, um. it's true. <laughs> but sloth poop is fascinating. Yes. Yeah. So sloths are interesting as vertebrates because they're, um, I'll use a technical term and then explain what it means. They're exclusively arboreal folivores, which means that they live in trees and they eat leaves. So arboreal for living in trees, folivore meaning eater of leaves or eater of foliage, um, which is kind of a rare thing for a mammal, especially a small bodied mammal. So there's a, um, much as gestation time increases with body mass, your ability to effectively digest poor nutrient quality food increases with body mass, which is one of the reasons that like a large bodied horse can get away with eating grass, but like something like a mouse or a squirrel needs to eat like nuts and berries, higher energy food. Um, and it has to do with retention time in the body. And so the longer you can keep something in your gut and kind of let it ferment and break down, especially plant matter, the uh, more nutrients you're going to be able to extract and the larger bodied you are, the more space you have available to do that. Sloths have kind of broken the mold on that one in part because they have these giant stomachs relative to their body size. So their stomach can be up to a third of their body weight. That is more points for the cute scale. You I think? feel like I think so. Cause they have like a little pot. They do. Situation they have a little pot belly yep. going on. And there's some, I think there's some fermentation cute. happening in there too. Um, I've been on the receiving end of some of those fermenting gases with a, with a deceased <laughs> individual, which was one of the worst smells I've ever smelled in my entire life. Um, I mean, imagine a sloth with a six pack, automatically less cute. Well, but they're covered me. in so much hair anyway, okay. you wouldn't, you wouldn't see it. And that's also something that's kind of weird about them is that like, there's this animal that lives in the tropics and they're covered in just an insane amount of hair. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's because they have almost no subcutaneous body fat. Mm -hmm. So they're incredibly lean. Um, I think that's one of the other reasons they're not considered like good eaten because they're just, you know, you're never going to get a well-marbled sloth steak. Um, and instead of having extra calories stored as fat cells, they just keep their stomach, which is again, up to a third of their body weight continuously full. So a sloth, um, you can think of a sloth as an animal that is living inside an all you can eat buffet, but all the food available is kind of crappy. So they've got a ton of available food and there's nothing really else eating it. There's insects that will eat leaves up there, but insects are so much smaller than most vertebrates that, you know, their overall contribution to the, you know, they're going to eat some leaves, but they're never going to eat so many leaves. The sloth won't have plenty of food too. Howler monkeys eat some leaves, but it's not their first choice of food if they can uh, get access to other things, whereas sloths will mostly just eat leaves. There's, there's some exceptions and um, uh, there's some exceptions to that. 
And so they keep their stomach full all the time. They have one of the longest gut retention times for food for any mammal. About 300 hours has been shown experimentally. You feed an animal a tracer, and then you can test for that tracer in the excrement. And Uh so you can test to see when 100% of that tracer has been passed through. Is the tracer just corn? I think it's usually a dye of some kind. The problem with sloths is they're such picky eaters. Like, they're so... Because not only are they exclusive folivores, uh, three-toed sloths in particular only have about four or five species of leaves that they'll eat from. And so they're picky. That's that's co- uh, koala bears are like that too. Koala right? bears, are, yeah, koala they're, bears are are ecologically very similar to sloths. Because if you think about it, like koala bears also sleep like twenty hours a day. Oh, sloths sleep twenty hours a day too. They can. Yeah. Oh, I love it. That Some, is my spirit animal. Sometimes it's hard to tell if a sloth is sleeping or just just not, not moving, just kind of zoned out. Oh, that's me. That's my life. <laughs> and, that um, describes me very well. Which is so funny because I. One of the women who works, I work with the Sloth Sanctuary of Costa Rica down Mm. in Costa Rica for the live animal stuff that I do, the fossil stuff. I'm mostly focused on North America. Right now, I'd love to do some South American fossil work. And one of the women who um, works uh, as a a volunteer and a longtime friend of the facility down there is a dolphin trainer by day. That's her job. And so (laughs) I got to go visit her at her aquarium with the dolphins. Yeah. And she was talking about how like sloths are her spirit animal and she really gets the sloth and she really gets that whole idea of like kind of zen, just zoned out and chill all the time, only move if you absolutely have to. And if you're going to move, make it the most efficient movement possible. Whereas the dolphins are like, I mean, they're like the CrossFit. uh, Yeah, they're just crazy, hyper attention seeking. They're like if dogs were turned up to 11 or 12 yeah. like they just want attention they want attention and it was so funny hanging out with her at the aquarium and hearing her talk about how the sloths are her spirit animal and she just kind of tolerates the dolphins personality she loves them obviously but she doesn't get them mm-hmm. and i was having the exact opposite reaction where it's like yeah i don't really get sloths i study them and i love them but like these dolphins these are make these make sense to me i get this i get this need for attention and yeah, this drive to just no. constantly be flipping around and doing something for someone who is a stand-up comedian who has been on television and has a podcast i don't care for attention that, that much but that's why i you mean do i a- need it for a living <laughs> but that's why you do a podcast where you interview other people because then you can always tell yourself well, i'm giving the attention to somebody else i'm yeah. not asking for any yeah, um yeah. i definitely feel that when i do interviews uh but so these the sauce they have this incredibly long retention time in the gut up to 300 hours uh the next longest mammal that's been tested that i'm aware of are manatees which keep the food in their stomach which are also incredibly strange mammals um and have some very odd similarities to sloths Um, like what Manatees and sloths are the only two mammals that have a different number of cervical vertebra than the normal i think the normal mammalian configuration is like Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get my postcranial anatomy wrong here, but oh boy, all, don't do that. I'm not gonna even say we're, a we're gonna have a lot of listeners calling all, you. All all, <laughs> all mammals have the same number of cervical vertebra except for sloths and manatees. Cervical vertebra, yeah, is that like the neck. Yeah. Okay, yeah, they have the same number. All mammals, like even giraffes, like we, we and giraffes, every mammal except for sloths and manatees have seven cervical vertebra which are the vertebra of the neck uh-huh. and uh i think manatee have a reduced number and sloths have more so that's one of the reasons you'll hear about sloths being able to like turn their head around like owls can almost um and that's and part of you know i mentioned that sloths are part of this group that includes anteaters and armadillos and the name for that group is Zenarthra. they used to be called edentata because of the weird teeth stuff we were talking about earlier edentata means with without teeth hmm. but anteaters are the only member of that group that actually don't have teeth uh, armadillos and sloths actually do have teeth. The giant armadillo, the largest living species of armadillo, Preodontis maximus, has the most teeth of any mammal, which is kind of weird. But uh, they got we changed the name 
in the taxonomy to Xenarthra, which means strangely jointed or oddly jointed. And it has to do with how their uh, vertebral column articulates or fits together like the Lego pieces. And um, it may not make a lot of sense when you're thinking about anteaters or sloths, but when you think about armadillos, like they can roll up into a ball. There must be something going on that's weird with their spine. And so sloths have some of that too, which explains sort of their neck. And that's how they got grouped together because you asked me uh, an armadillo and a sloth. I would never have grouped them in the yeah, same category. Yeah, it is, it is strange. Uh, you can start to see some of the similarities. Um, there's a group of ground sloths that had uh, dermal scutes, which are bones embedded in their skin. So that's kind of an armadillo-like thing to that's have fun. armor, you know, armored. Armadillos are famous for having essentially very hardened, you know, bones on the outside of their body as, as armor protection, and some sloths were armored similarly too. Uh, the claws, if you think about, you know, having these really robust claws, armadillos use them for digging into like, uh, digging or burrowing into the ground. They're fossorial, which is a fancy term for living underground, but you, know, you can see the cognate there with the fossil. Um, anteaters use their giant claws for tearing into termite mounds, and then ground sloths use their claws for hanging on to trees, but ground sloths were probably using their claws more like an armadillo or an anteater and not necessarily for climbing. Um, so there's, there's some similarities you can start to see when you, when you look at the fossil record, the modern world for Xenarthans doesn't necessarily paint that same picture. Hmm. And how many sloths there used to be? Used to be 80 to hundred genera. So genera is the level above a species. So like our, our genus is homo, mm-hmm. uh, our species is sapien. So in the fossil record, um, species designations get a little tricky because uh, really anytime anybody finds a new fossil that you can't definitively put into one species or another, you can name a new species. So a lot of times when we talk about fossil diversity, it's easier to talk at a higher taxonomic level just because that's more likely to be stable in the long term than the lower species level. So 80 to 100 genera. Uh, By comparison, there are two genera of sloth alive today, the two-toed sloths and the three-toed sloths. Um, With the three-toed sloth, that's genus Bratipus, and there are four species. Uh, Three, maybe. There's The the fourth one is a little bit up in the air or debated. Uh, And then with two-toed sloths, there are two species, Hmm. um, and that's genus Calipus. And um, the, the, yeah, as I mentioned a little bit, the range of ground sloths used to go all the way from... uh, Canada, the Yukon Territory, Alaska, all throughout the Caribbean, all throughout North America from coast to coast. You know, we have ground sloths coming out of the La Brea Tar Pits, and the first ground sloth fossil ever described was found just a few hours from here in uh, what is now West Virginia, what was Virginia at the time, um, as well as Florida and the Caribbean and Central America and South America, all the way down into like Patagonia. So just a really crazy range for these animals back in the day. Hmm. And because one of the things that I like about sloths is it doesn't seem like they should exist. Mm-hmm. You look at a sloth and you're like, how? Evolution, when when you look at most, certainly at least the way it's portrayed and, and you know, the, the documentaries, Planet Earth and whatnot, aren't necessarily showing the monotonous day-to-day life of a given species and are maybe showing the the slivers of the most dramatic aspects of a given species life but it certainly seems like animals out there and evolution in general is just a very cutthroat Mm -hmm. kind of process and sloth just seems like something that it's like how does that make the cut i mean it gives me hope as as my spirit animal Mm -hmm. but but is it is it just because there wasn't much meat on their bone they didn't taste good and they were just full of shit that is that, is <laughs> well, that like a, was that like a natural defense yeah I, I joke about this um so what's interesting is we don't really know what what 
prompted sloths to move up into the trees in the first place. Um, there's some debate about the uh, phylogenetic or or the interrelated relationships between all the ground sloths and the living sloths. The two-toed sloth fits pretty well within one of the families that contained a lot of the ground sloths. Um, uh, Megalonyctidae is the name of that family. And uh, there's some debate about switching it to a different ground sloth family, but it, either way, it shares a lot of traits with some of the ground sloths that you can use to place it definitively in one group or the other. Three-toed sloths are a mystery. They kind of come out of nowhere, and we don't really know how they're related even to other ground sloths. Um, and so, we, and we also don't have a fossil record of that transition from terrestrial to arboreal. We have some sloths that were small enough that they probably could have started climbing trees in the Caribbean, but we also don't have any sloths in the Caribbean today, so it seems unlikely. I mean, sloths have shown that they're able to do marine distribution like the um another thing i I didn't mention is that ground sloths arrived in north america before the panamanian land bridge finished forming so they were swimming across open ocean to get here um which you don't think of a sloth as like that ambitious of like i will go there and find new lands off into the distance right and i mean maybe they were just in the water and got swept away in a storm and ended up you know on the coast of what then would have been the big group of them panhandle of panama enough apparently maybe maybe they moved in herds maybe i get to do the alan grant quote of like the yes they do move in herds but um yeah enough sloths arrived in North America that there was a stable population of sloths in North America before the land bridge ever finished forming and the rest of the great American biotic interchange took place. Um, which is the, the term in paleontology for that moment when North and South America were connected for the first time by Panama or what is now Panama, um, which is a huge moment because South America had been an Island continent since about the time the dinosaurs went extinct. So South America had been evolving in what has been termed splendid isolation uh, for for many millions of years before finally being reintroduced to the rest of the world with all these weird animals like sloths and armadillos and anteaters. And so we don't know when the sloths started to make that move up into the trees. And part of that is the bias of the fossil record. So the fossil record does not preserve equally all across the world. Uh, when you think about places where fossils come from, you often think of dry and arid environments. And that's because those environments typically don't have a lot of trees or plants in the way of just getting the rocks exposed, but also like water tends to erode things much more quickly than wind and plants like root systems tend to break down anything that's in the ground. So uh, plants themselves will also destroy fossils by turning them into soil. And so the tropics tend to be a tough place to do paleontology. So if this evolutionary process by which ground sloths became tree sloths or, or some offshoot of them evolved into tree sloths, it's possible that we're just missing that story because the fossil record of the tropics isn't quite as robust as some of the higher latitude places available in North and South America. Hmm. Huh. It's called a taphonomic bias. It's, it's a whole own field of paleontology, which is just the science of how does the fossil record get preserved and what biases are present when you're preserving things, which hmm. is kind of cool. That is cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, what what you trying to go back in time and create these stories of what happened is so yeah and we were talking about coming up with narratives and you were also asking me if the um if the ground sloths would have would have been as cute and cuddly as the tree sloths and I have some colleagues that that argue that the ground sloths would have been significantly more active than tree sloths like probably as active as any other animal out in the environment um I think they were probably on the slow side, even for terrestrial animals, but there's this one paper that I was going to bring up a a bit ago, but I'll I'll come back to now called um, Megatherium the Stabber. 
And it's this idea that um, not only were ground sloths active and sometimes a little bit mean, but maybe they were actively predatory. <laughs> and um, because there's kind of this lack, there's there's sites in South America that have a lot of sloths and a lot of other and multiple kinds of sloths and a lot of large bodied herbivores and not a ton of carnivores. And that doesn't seem like the most sustainable environment because you need something to thin the herd. Like we see that here in North America all the time, you know, you have to have deer calls because we've killed all the wolves and mountain lions. And so there's nothing eating the deer. So deer overpopulate and you got to go take them out. And so it looks like that's what's going on in the fossil sites. So this one paleontologist proposed an idea that maybe the largest sloth living in that environment, the megatherium, this elephant sized animal was actually a pretty active predator or at least a scavenger and would have been going up to these, Volkswagen beetle sized glyptodonts, which looked like armadillos, um, and just like flipping them with its claws and scooping out the insides like a like a bread bowl of soup or something. Oh, um yeah. I don't put a lot of stock in that theory huh. and, and some of the the research I've been working on for my dissertation actually does kind of challenge it a little bit more directly, um, showing that based on some of the chemical chemical evidence inside the bones, you can you can kind of tell how much meat might have been being eaten. And it doesn't look like from the bones we've sampled so far that uh animal protein contributed a significant proportion of diet for the ground sloths that we've looked at so far shoot armadillo soup does sound <laughs> <the appetizing. laughs> and yeah and, and part of the reason we're able to do this work is because i work with the live animals where you know exactly what they were eating i can then go look at the chemistry of their bones and say like even though sloths are some of the weirdest mammals that have ever evolved we, I can at least test it against what we know from the modern world. And then we can look back at the fossils and see if that kind of matches our expectation. And, um, and you do the uh, opposite as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. So, um, so that's a technique called stable isotope analysis, where you're looking at the isotopic ratios inside bones and, and teeth and other tissues. And, um, basically comes down to you are what you eat at the atomic level. So everything we're taking in those actual atoms of the food are what's getting incorporated into our tissues. It's what's getting into our skin. It's what's getting into our hair. It's what's getting into our bones. Um, it's not getting into our teeth anymore because our teeth aren't growing, but if you're a sloth, your teeth are still growing. So it's also getting into their teeth. And, um, you can use that to actually determine, <clears throat> excuse me, determine what kinds of plants an animal would be eating. So you can see, um, in areas with different kinds of plants like, um, the American Southwest, uh, where it's very arid, plants have evolved these special photosynthetic adaptations to surviving in an arid environment, and that changes the ratio of carbon in their leaves, and so that works its way up the food chain into the into the sloth that eats them. Um, but also, in like the nitrogen system, you can see sort of where's the protein in this animal's diet coming from, and plant protein looks pretty different than animal protein, and so you can actually tell a lot by looking at just the ratio of a couple different elements, um, assuming you have good enough preservation that those haven't been altered in in the time that it took you to find the fossil and get it analyzed. Hmm. Well, when people analyze me, they're going to see that I ate an embarrassing amount of candy. You can actually see bones. a pretty, it's pretty easy to tell Americans from Europeans with this exact technique. Really? Yeah, because of the corn. Ah. Corn syrup. And uh, corn is a C4 plant. It's one of those uh, more arid adapted plants. We've obviously artificially selected it to, to grow in a very different way than it would occur naturally. But um, <clears throat> the fact that a lot of the meat we eat is also fed a corn-based diet means that we're getting that corn carbon signature coming in from every direction. And you can actually use it to test, like you can see how much corn syrup Budweiser is putting in their beer because uh, beer and, and a lot of other products like that shouldn't have any of this C4 signal. And so if you start seeing C4 in 
beer and tequila and whiskey. Well, I guess whiskey, if it's corn whiskey, it should have all that. But yeah, you can actually use it. There's a lot of fun little applications where you can kind of test your expectations versus reality with uh, mm. the isotopes don't lie. See if they're sneaking the corn in there yep. or not. Huh. Oh, man. Learning so much. Well, I... Um, uh, got to start wrapping up a little bit here because I need to get back to my splendid isolation uh, before my show tonight. <laughs> Sounds like an album name. <laughs> it does. Uh, for it, it the, for the introverted comedian, splendid isolation. Yeah. <laughs> um, before I do, I have my guest each week plug a nonprofit of their choice. Did you have one in mind? Yes, I do. Um, so I mentioned the Sloth Conservation Foundation, which is a nonprofit run out of Costa Rica that is working to help conserve modern sloths. So uh, I joke that there are a lot of fossils and there are a lot of fossil sloths and I don't need any more things in the fossil record. So I'm a very big proponent of conservation. I want to keep things alive uh, for as long as possible. Um, So don't give me any more work basically. Mm -hmm. And then um, I'm also involved with the National Youth Science Foundation, which is a foundation that was created back in the 60s to um, get recent high school graduates at a summer camp, uh, fully funded to spend a couple of weeks in the woods of Appalachia, uh, learning science. And so, um, I grew up in Southern Appalachia or I grew up in Southern West Virginia, a part of Appalachia. And it's really cool to me that like, there's this science camp nestled away in the woods where a bunch of graduating high school seniors in between the, the graduating high school and going off to college get to come out and learn all this science. And, um, I usually go and give a lecture and take them on a field trip. We go fossil hunting in the region and get to find some cool stuff. So, um, that's also a nonprofit that I would encourage people to check out. That is awesome. And it's, so how are, uh, how are sloths looking? Uh, uh, I mean, it looks, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed that they exist right. in the first place, but, uh, it, it looks like that's a kind of a troubling predicament for most for a lot of mammals out there yeah how are what are what's the future of the sloth so i often have said that um coming growing up where i did in west virginia you know i came up with this idea that like sloths are kind of the canary in the coal mine for tropical forests and so i think because sloths are such a sensitive species they're so restricted in their diet they're so restricted in their habitat they're so restricted metabolically in a lot of ways that are easy to, to it's easy to tilt that balance off scale um that I think sloths are a good species to watch for because if sloths start doing poorly, I think everything else is going to follow behind. And sloths seem to be doing okay right now. Uh, the biggest risks to modern sloths are things like forest connectivity, agricultural and land development in Central and South America. Um, in particular, development of agriculture that is focused on monocultures of non-tree species or non-shade-grown species. So things like pineapple and bananas are tough for the sloths just because you don't grow those crops in an area where there's tree cover. And so you end up clearing forest and not giving any sort of connectivity for the sloth to cross over. Whereas things like shade grown cocoa and coffee, you're growing them in the shade. So the sloth, the the trees that the sloth need are still there in that environment. Um, So there have been some studies that are a little more promising that show that the right kind of development or the right kind of thoughtful agricultural development can mitigate or lessen the impacts to sloths but it's something that i think definitely needs to be thought about and advocated for moving forward on a brighter note one more thing about sloth poop how are they doing it because oh yeah i guess we never yeah we never got into the mechanics <clears throat> so after this 300 hour digestion time uh three-toed sloths in particular two-toed sloths are a little less um ritualistic about their bathroom habits, but three-toed sloths will descend out of the tree. It's the only time they come out of the tree uh, on purpose, unless they have to like cross a road or something. It's the only time they would come out of the tree by choice. 
and they dig a little hole at the base of the tree and they have like specific trees that the whole community of sloths uses. I didn't tell you that before, but like there are bathroom trees, latrine trees Mm. out in the forest that all the sloths know. So there could be some sort of chemical communication that's happening at these sloth retreat, sloth retreats where sloth. Wow. You nailed it. I'm doing this. Did I? Okay. Um, and so there, that is one of the theories that maybe there's some chemical communication happening at these latrine pits, but they climb out of the tree. They descend from the tree and then they hug the tree. And at the base of the tree, they scoop out a little pit with their tail. They have this kind of short stubby club like tail and then they poop and then they pee and then they cover the, that back up and then they climb back up in the tree. And this is very perplexing behavior because sloths don't have a lot of extra metabolic energy to spare. They're, they're very limited. Um, so too much energy expenditure can mean death for a sloth. And it's that, it's that cut and dry. So why would they waste all this energy climbing yeah, down and then climbing down, back up? Just to have it fall down you would from think. the trees. So yeah. it's possible they're doing this to avoid predators spotting them. So if they poop up in the trees, maybe the predator, uh, their only predators that are interested in sloths are harpy eagles uh, from above and big cats from below. So jaguars, mountain lions, maybe an ocelot or uh, something a little smaller. But sloths are pretty good. At avoiding those predators, they mostly avoid them by just never moving. So if you're not moving, it's really hard to see them. Um, I When I give talks, I show a photo of just staring up at the forest canopy from the floor to show how hard it is to spot a sloth because even when I go down to the tropics, it takes me a day or two to get my search image back in my brain. I have to walk around for at least a day just kind of remembering how to see them. They're so easy to, to miss. And so... Um, Pooping from the trees, maybe that gives their smell away, maybe that gives them away visually, but they climb down out of the tree, and when they poop, another interesting thing happens is sloths are covered in moths, and it's called, it's a specific species that only lives on the sloth, it's called the sloth moth, which is kind of hard to say, um, and we don't know entirely what the relationship between the moth and the sloth is, the the moths don't seem to be providing any sort of benefit to the sloth. If anything, they seem kind of to annoy the sloths that I've interacted with. Um, they like literally will crawl like in and out of their nose, in and out of their eye. Sloths are constantly scratching themselves with their claws, and I think that's because the moths are probably kind of ticklish or tickling them. Um, but the moths, their entire life cycle is revolving around the sloth. So when the sloth poops, the moths all leave the fur, lay their eggs on the poop, and then by the time the sloth is finished with their business, all the moths have run back up into the sloth's fur. And then uh, the poop gets covered up. The moth eggs hatch. The larvae feed off of the poop. And then meta- uh, metamorphose or pupate into their adult form. And then fly up into the forest canopy and find a new sloth to colonize. And that keeps their genetic diversity high, even though they're all just living on sloths their entire life. Hmm. So, very interesting system. It seems like it's a great system for the moths. A great system for the moths. So, the... the- <laughs> The moths aren't providing any kind of benefit that, that <gasps> there's there's people that argue that um, sloths also notoriously have algae that grows in their fur. And so um, sloth hair seems specifically evolved to host this algae. And it's unclear why, because um, there there's some researchers that argue that the sloths are eating the algae off of their fur. Uh, so maybe it's giving them some nutrients that they're not getting from their normal leafy That's diet. That's convenient. It would be convenient, except in it's never been directly observed. Like nobody's ever seen a sloth licking themselves. Um, they don't need to lick themselves to groom themselves. They've got the claws for that. They, they, and 
in my experience with sloths, most of the algae occurs on the back of the neck and the shoulders. And so unless they're licking the algae off of every other part, that's the hardest part to actually, you can try right now. It's the hardest part of yourself to lick. Um, even for a very flexible animal like a sloth, like the back of your shoulders is a tough place to get to. So it hasn't been observed. There's been some evidence of finding the algae DNA in their stomachs. So it might be getting in there somehow, some other way, or that algae just occurs in other places that they're, they're consuming it off the leaves or whatever. Um, so it's thought that maybe the moths living in their fur are like pooping in the fur and fertilizing the algae with their nitrogenous, nitrogenous excrement. Um, the moths aren't eating the algae because the adult stage of the moth doesn't have mouth parts. They, they only eat as larvae. And then when they metamorphose or pupate into adults, they're just doing that to reproduce and then die. Um, some people argue that it's camouflage. It gives them this green tint up in the trees, but it doesn't cover the entire body and it tends to be much more pronounced during the wet season than the dry season. So like camouflage that only works half the year, maybe not that great. And, um, I even sloths that aren't covered in algae, like they're still incredibly hard to spot. It's just this brown lump and like they're high up in the trees. They're in places where there are termite mounds, arboreal termite mounds, the same size as the sloth. So it's very easy to mistake them for a brown termite mound if they're brown colored. So there's a lot of, a lot of mysteries, a lot of open questions about sloths. And that's one of the reasons that, um, to sort of wrap up, one of the reasons I keep studying them is because I was asked this question when I started my master's nearly 10 years ago of, Hey, can you, can you figure out this one thing about sloths? Can you figure out, are there softer teeth still worth using this technique on? And I came up with what I thought was a reasonable answer to that question. And it's that they're okay. It's not as good as the enamel teeth, but there's some information being recorded there. But in doing that project, I found that I ended up with three or four new questions about sloths that nobody else had answered yet. And um, them being so difficult to study means that there's a lot of basic knowledge that we still haven't quite figured out just because it's really tricky to figure it out on an animal that is as difficult to work with as sloths. And I find that really exciting. And I find that every time I work on a sloth project, I walk away, even if I get the answer to that one question, I walk away with more questions. And so the questions keep multiplying and I keep wanting to learn new things about these animals. And so I keep pushing myself to, to continue on and, and learn more things about the sloths and discover as much as we can. So it's just the fractal like nature of sloths. It, it's just sloths the whole way down. I think that's true for most types of science, but for my life that, that path has been the slothy path. So yeah, yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Ryan Halpert. Helped. Yes, perfect. Uh, all right. I'm the worst with names, and I've never met a helped before. I'm I here. Like I, you know, the most common thing I hear is that people have never met a paleontologist before. Oh uh, no, I, I have. I, I imagine you would have. But yeah. yeah. So I'm happy. Not to be too many, actually. So I, I think you're like the third on the podcast, and first sloth talk. So. I mean, you're the you're the only the second or third comedian we've had on our podcast. All so right. I think we're, this is a good exchange. Of, yeah, that we've got absolutely. Going on right now. Well, thank you so much for joining. Thank me. you so much for having me. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Next week on the podcast, we're going to be talking with Alex Proaps and we're going to be talking about kind of the creating the bridge between the general public and kind of all the latest and greatest and artificial intelligence and that sort of thing. I know it's a favorite topic for many of you out there and something that we don't discuss enough on the show, the future. So should be a real good one. I also want to say I've kind of been 
I go back and forth with the psychedelic stuff and it, here the main reason is there's still so much we live in a world unfortunately where there's still so much stigma related with psychedelics and people thinking like all drugs are the same and you do psychedelics you're some druggy crazy person believe it or not many listeners there's still people out there with that perception and I sure would hate for that to somehow negatively influence what I try to do within my the realms of science communication. This podcast is the most important thing in my uh, my life. Science communication is really important. It's a big part of my sit, my stand up, and it's uh, a big driving force for me. One of the things that really brings meaning and purpose. To my life and I just uh, get nervous because there are people out there that sometimes they're like well I was going to come out to this stand-up science show but I was worried it was going to be all about drugs because I've heard this Shane Moss guy talk about drugs on other people's podcasts and uh, and it's just it's really disheartening and so I've you know I, I go back and forth and often put these things on the background. And then, you know, I have my guests on on this podcast that are good enough to come on and they're sharing this with their friends and and you don't want people thinking like, oh, is this, what kind of a strange <laughs> cult? I, I, I don't know what weird perceptions people have about, uh, about psychedelics because I'm, you know, so far uh, detached from from that and as, as someone that's seen all the good that they do but uh, the point is it's really factored into I don't know how how much more I can do with say this myco meditations and here I am in Jamaica once again back again seeing people improving their lives being helped by these things all while getting to spend a bunch of wonderful time at the beach and just feeling better about myself and more confident and exercising and every time when I'm not in Jamaica, I'm like, that's probably, you know, the upcoming one, that's going to be my last one. And then, and then that's it. I got to focus on stand-up science. I got all these other things going on. I don't have time to be going and helping out and spending two weekends in, in, uh, in Jamaica uh, to help, you know, 15 people through, through these experiences. But then I come here and it's just, it's different, uh, it's it's all different muscles, it's all different um, kind of social connections that I'm making, and man, it's wonderful. And then there's other considerations too, because I, I was at first trying to do Here We Are retreats, and then there wasn't as much interest from listeners in terms of, there's been a lot of people that have heard the show and have come to these retreats, but in terms of getting enough people that are not only interested but available on the specific week that I'm here has been a little bit challenging and we had some retreats that were like half my listeners and half just open to the general public and then here comes Michael Pollan's book How to Change Your Mind and it's really normalized things and it's kind of blown up so now now as, as soon as they're putting a retreat online these things are selling out pretty much before I can even tell you guys about them and so so now I'm coming down here and I'm helping out with a bunch of people that aren't my listeners which is it was good as well but I'm I'm just kind of it doesn't 
then the financials don't make sense for, for either the Michael Meditations folks or myself. It's more than they can pay me to be here just to help guide some people through and, and less than I um, can afford to work for coming down for two weekends, you know, which is essentially two weeks of, of my income. So I've been, and just, these are all the considerations that I've been making lately. And now that I'm here, I'm like, gosh, this is just such an, the other thing is every time I come down here, it's better than they keep on working, even though they're selling out every one of these retreats. I mean, they, they are letting less people in each time. They're adding more facilitators. They're improving the accommodations. Every time I'm here, it's just, they've just put so much more into it. Um, I mean, like the food has been a, a little bit of a hang up where in many of the retreats, it kind of got a little old after a while with some of the places and some of the accommodations. and. And they have different offerings, and I'm at this this comfort retreat now. It's in kind of a different location, has different um, food in it, and the food's just incredible this time around. Any of you listeners that have came to past retreats, you'd be like, uh, I, I mean, you know, the the food was always fine, and you're on your own for lunch and everything else. But now it's like fantastic. I mean, just last night there was two different kinds of dessert uh, and past listeners that have come here they're going to be like you have dessert now no, uh, two different three different kinds actually last night of, of dessert available all these big buffets with fantastic food and uh, like, i think that i do want to keep coming back here it would be it would be sad for me to think that this is my last time coming and doing this and seeing seeing the incredible impact that it's having on people's lives so in an informal way if it's something that you're interested in if you write me if you go on the here we are podcast.com website and and write from there and express interest in if you or if you write Michael meditations and find even if i'm not here it's something you should you should definitely do and go go there see the testimonials and and check it out but it would be nice to if there was i'm putting a feeler out right now if there was enough people interested i really would we've never had the experience where the entire retreat is here we are uh listeners and i do that is something that i would would definitely really sell me on on coming back and and it would just make a lot more sense uh, for everyone involved. And and I'm thinking January maybe. That's that's plenty of time from now. January 2020. You know, it's in the dead of winter, and so the weather's a little more mild than Jamaica. Still, just beautiful and sunny and perfect weather all the time, but just not as incredibly hot. And and this last winter that I dealing with the seasonal depression it just i mean i lose a month or two of productivity to to that crap to having to drive around the midwest in the winter and so these are the things i've been thinking about so i'm putting a feeler i haven't even talked to the Michael meditations people about this i just know they would be on board if if um if we did sort something out but anyway i'm a big uh believer in it and 
And if you do, by the way, if you do your research and Google, you, you might see there's like some like past past guest, a past facilitator that worked here is now like trying to start their own thing in Jamaica. And to do that, they're trying to like uh, create controversy around myco meditations. It's this whole petty thing. I know the person doing it and they just, they suck as an individual. And, um, and so if you do, if you do see like, like a negative thing online, it's, it's really, it's just one, one individual who has lots of problems with lots of people in the psychedelic community has been uh, asked to leave many uh, legitimate psychedelic organizations, in, including uh, so, some really big ones. They, uh, anyway, they're, uh, they're a nightmare of an individual and in trying to create problems for um, the micro-meditations people just... So you know, if you happen to see that, that's what that is about. Um, go to theirs if you want to. Uh, it's uh, it's not even the Michael Meditations doesn't even view it as competition. It's just uh, anyway. Um, so that's all. That's all a whole another thing. I just thought I'd get you guys up to speed with everything that is going on here because you may have noticed haven't really talked much about psychedelics other until the documentary came out here and it's just because I've been trying to keep the I've been uh, I've been trying to separate a little bit my different worlds I, I always have but I've been doing it more so um, since like last year and some mental health issues and other things happened and I, I've just since stand-up science has become my my main driving motivator in my career right now I've just kind of been giving you know, 98% of my effort toward that and psychedelics have been on the back burner. So that's, that's kind of why I haven't been talking about them as, as much of late, but, uh, yeah, I'm here. It's on my mind. It's something I want to tell you guys about. So I hope you enjoyed the bonus episode and, uh, and yeah, those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are of course my favorites.